Hi, this is Max Rivlin Nadler, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible and receiving the perk of getting this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. Full Stop relies on your support to flourish and grow. Full Stop's website is right now brimming with reviews, interviews, and essays, updated multiple times a week with brand new content, delivered straight to the internet. There you might find things like a recent review of the book Rip Tales by Jordan Stein. In that review, author Lee Gallagher traces the history of lost and reassembled art in San Francisco, how both time and displacement play out on physical objects, and how they take on new meanings in different contexts, while only gesturing at a possible message or sign. Gallagher writes, is it enough to only ever half know what we're doing, what we're making, and why? Is it enough to circle only questions, never to arrive at answers? Plenty of artists, now and before us, have thrived on their own terms in the half-knowing, in the unresolved. Why shouldn't we? In that spirit of the unresolved, we present a jam-packed new episode of the Full Stop podcast. First up, we have an interview between author Keeley Shinners and Full Stop editor Hannah Lim Vines. Full Stop contributor Shinners is a writer and editor based in Cape Town, South Africa. Their debut novel, How to Build a Home for the End of the World, is forthcoming from Perennial Press. I'll let Keeley and Hannah take it from here. Thank you so much for talking with me about your book, um, How to Build a Home at the End of the World, which is an incredible journey across America in a post-apocalyptic world, Uh, but in your book you really challenge the notion of the post-apocalypse in an exciting way. And uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to talk about it. Do you want to go ahead and read a little bit from it to set us up? for our conversation. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to read it and for chatting with me. Um, I'm gonna be reading from the beginning of the book, just a few paragraphs. Um, This is when Mary Beth, one of the main characters, has arrived in Chicago for the first time. So, Chicago, Illinois. Mary Beth followed the man through the terminal. To her, with its marble floors, Corinthian columns, and vaulted ceiling, it looked more like the palaces from her fantasy novels than a train station, save for the sleepers splayed out on the wooden waiting benches, their life's wares couched beneath their necks. They parted ways on the street outside, Mary Beth on her bicycle, he on foot, their temporary alliance closed. Mary Beth waved him goodbye, but he did not wave back. She pedaled in no particular direction, guided only by sounds, shouts and engines, pennies shaking in a Dixie cup, bones of a train drumming over an elevated iron rail. She craned up at the towers, once strongholds of powerful office men, and saw bright clothes on washing lines, women whacking carpets with wooden spoons. In an alleyway, she saw a man playing trombone by himself while a cat wove figure eights around his ankles. A block down, two old folks sat in beach chairs with rifles crated in their laps. 
guarding the entrance to a 7-Eleven. Inside the store, there were several flower beds from which small orange trees emerged, bathed in strips of fluorescent light. Another block passed. Mary Beth crossed a bridge over what once had been a long, wide river. Peering over the railing, she saw only dregs of greenish sludge and one ashy shirtless man singing a folk song to a bonfire with a voice that sounded outside of time. This Chicago was but a shell of what it used to be, but to Mary Beth it was miraculously alive, bewitched with possibility. She pedaled on, nerves giving way to a gullible infatuation. And I think I'll stop there for now. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for reading that. It's so cool to hear the scene and the city come alive in your voice. Um, is there any sort of like synopsis or blurb you want to give listeners to to kind of um, you know fill in somebody who hasn't read the book yet? Okay. Yeah. Sure. So How to Build a Home for the End of the World is about a family who lives in this small town, Fox Lake, Illinois, and it takes place at the end of the world, wherein the end of the world is kind of this ongoing, almost worldwide drought. And this family, the Sorensons, they have been surviving off the lake in their town. Um, but overnight, the lake disappears. Uh, it's not clear if somebody came to steal the water or if kind of evaporated by magical realism on its own. Um, but the family's kind of thrown into a, a crisis and uh, in the midst of the family kind of unraveling, the daughter, Mary Beth, kind of falls in love for the first time. Um, with a girl, Ida, she meets in Chicago. Um, And just as their relationship seems like it's about to get going, Ida leaves for California to seek care for a chronic illness. And Mary Beth convinces her father, Donnie, to go on a road trip with her from Illinois to California to follow her first love. And she and her father get up to all sorts of hijinks on the road, Um, meet lots of strange characters along the way, lose themselves along the way, find themselves along the way, lose themselves again. Um, Yeah, so that's pretty much (laughs) what happens in the book. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a great synopsis that doesn't really give anything away. Yeah, no no Um, spoilers. Very well done. I'm impressed. Um, So, yeah, just the most basic of all questions. Where did uh, this come from? How did you get started on this project and what made you want to write it? Right. So what sparked the idea for How to Build a Home for the End of the World was a road trip that I actually did take with my dad in January of 2017, where we drove from my hometown, Fox Lake, Illinois, to California, where I was doing my undergrad at the time. And as we were driving, also as Donnie and Mary Beth do, kind of following the ruins of Route 66, um, I was looking around at these kind of repetitive motel rooms and neglected towns and these large swaths of land which are owned but not visibly inhabited and 
I got this feeling like you could write a road trip novel and you know tell it almost as close to the grain of truth as possible but then also tell your readers that it's taking place at the end of the world and they probably wouldn't bat an eye. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think in general, maybe not consciously, maybe implicitly, Americans know what it's like to grow up in a post-apocalyptic scenario um, because, yeah, what is the genocide and displacement of indigenous peoples and the destruction of the land here, if not an apocalyptic scenario? Um, so I think most Americans know what it's like to grow up in sort of a spiritual, moral, psychological, cultural, sometimes wasteland. Um, but at the same time, our, our lives are not devoid of care and tenderness and beauty and solidarity and hope and love. So I perhaps naively wanted to write a book that could hold uh, these two truths together, the wasteland and the hope and the love and the tenderness. And uh, I was 20 at the time that we took this road trip, so <laughs> it took me five years to figure out exactly what I wanted to say and what story I wanted to tell. But now at the end of it, I'm, I'm really excited to share it with people. Yeah, I am really excited for you to share it with people. I... I think that you've definitely succeeded in what what you described as naive, but I, I think you've done it so well. Thanks, Heather. I, <laughs> I can't imagine it's naive. Um, so you spent five years on it, mm -hmm. uh, so I imagine you were reading and watching and listening to a lot of different things, but um, were there any things in particular that were guiding you as you were working on this project? Any media that you were consuming? Sure. Um, so the two kind of texts that were at my desk by my side for pretty much the whole process, um, they're maybe a little bit far out, but I'll explain. Um, one was Another Country by James Baldwin, and the other was Plain Water by Anne Carson. Um, so Another Country is probably my, my favorite novel of all time. Um, and there's a particular scene in that novel which has always fascinated me. Um, it's a scene between, I don't know if you've read the book before, um, but there are these two... I I have not read it, so please break it down. Okay, cool. So um, there are these two characters, Cass and Ida. Um, basically, Another Country is a book about a friend group where everybody sleeps with everybody else and it causes a whole lot of drama. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Cass and Ida are, are two, of the, two of the only, actually, they're the only women in this friend group. Um, and... They're each having affairs, and they're kind of protecting each other from each other's partners and kind of using each other as smoke screens to hide the affair. Um, and there's a scene where the two of them get into a taxi and talk, and it's the only scene where two women are talking to each other in the book, so it's an anomaly in that way. Um, and it starts off as almost as if they've got some sort of solidarity because they're keeping each other's secrets, but their conversation quickly descends into 
condescension and fear, um, especially on the part of Cass, who realizes talking to Ida that her whiteness and her heterosexual marriage has kind of like made her naive and sheltered to the world. Um, and in short, she realizes that Ida, who's a black woman, knows far much more about her than she'll ever know about herself. And she resents Ida for knowing that, and Ida resents her for knowing that. Um, and I got the idea for Ida and Mary Beth's relationship from this scene, kind of wondering, like, what if Cass and Ida hooked up, like everybody else is hooking up in the book? What would those intimacy dynamics look like? What would those power dynamics look like? Um, yeah, so that's, that's a book that, that really inspired me, specifically that relationship. And uh, the other book, Plain Water by Ann Carson, there's an essay in it called Just for the Thrill, an essay on the difference between women and men. And it's structured as a road trip, so it was the one road trip book that I kept by my side the entire time, um, in which the narrator and her boyfriend are driving from Indiana to Los Angeles. Um, I returned to this text over and over again while working on the road trip scenes. Um, firstly, because Anne Carson masters this power dynamic between a man and a woman, um, even though they're partners, and in my book it's a father and daughter, um, she does this nice thing of oscillating between connection and revulsion, and there's something about the road trip which keeps going on and on, uh, where the relationship kind of goes through these cycles, connection and revulsion, uh, sin and forgiveness, and I definitely try to replicate that, that tone between Donnie and Mary Beth in the road trip scenes. Um, and the other thing that Anne Carson does really well is really just to write a good sentence. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, particularly like when she's describing the scenery. Um, when you actually go on a road trip and you look out the window, you want to be surprised, but often you're not surprised because it looks pretty much the same for hours on end. But Anne Carson has a way of writing a sentence that makes you look out the window and just surprises you. Um, so I tried to have a few of those in my novel as well. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, Anne Carson is, is one of my favorites for sure. And I haven't read Plain Water, so it's really cool to hear you describe it. Mm. Yeah, um, definitely, makes definitely me want to pick it up. It up. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that, that's your road trip narrative. What about uh, post-apocalyptic media that you recommend? I've been describing your book as like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but with hope and names. Um, <laughs> also, your book um, makes explicit the nature of this quote-unquote apocalypse mm -hmm. uh, that Mary Beth and Donnie and Ida and everyone in How to Build a Home at the End of the World are living through, um, which, which is an interesting kind of uh, move that I haven't seen often in this kind of uh, post-apocalyptic media where it's like typically just something happened and now we're in the post-period. Right. Um, so yeah, do you have any recommendations for us? Um, well, yeah, it's so funny you bring up the road. It, I actually find that book very remarkably written, but it is, it's so dark. 
so, so dark. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to, in my book, have go to some dark, dark places, but counter that with some lightheartedness and whimsy and joy at times. Um, I've also been describing the book to people as like Mad Max Fury Road, but if it was directed by mm. Miranda July. <laughs> <laughs> Um, with, with regards to other media that's done this, I'm sure once the book comes out, people are going to be sending me all these recommendations of beautiful books and movies that I haven't encountered before. Um, but the first things that come to mind for me, there's one film called Baccarat, um, which is a Brazilian film, kind of a pseudo contemporary, pseudo apocalyptic scenario. Um, which I found quite hopeful. It's about uh, this community which is uh, in, the, in the world of the film being hunted by these like European hunters. Um, mm. And the community like bands together and fights back and it's beautifully shot and there's all these beautiful like tender spiritual scenes in it contrasted with um, action and bloodlust and um, yeah, that's a really good one. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about something that you already touched on a little bit, but this very um, close reality that you've created to our own with the Route 66 trip and the landmarks that are on it and just all of the very recognizable um, pieces of America and Americana that you then fictionalized. And I wanted to ask about um, like your decisions around what to include and then also how to warp that um into your your quote-unquote end of the world right so um my father and I actually did not go to many of these tourist destinations which I regret considerably um but as I was doing research for the novel I tried to get my hands on like route 66 guides that kind of tell tourists where to go um and I was fascinated by some of these places that have kind of dark and troubling histories, like they mentioned Statesville, which is a notorious prison in Illinois, um, the Merrimack Caverns in Missouri, which um, used to be the hideout of, of Jesse James, who's kind of like a known outlaw and KKK supporter. Um, mm. the, the Trail of Tears monument in Missouri um, and all these places are kind of talked about in these guides as being like very kitschy and uh, tourist traps in a way and um, as I put my characters on this route I kind of wanted to have them witness the, the, the darker underside of some of these places um, to witness some degree the painful histories um, and in some cases that's literally having uh, somebody realistically tell the story of how the Trail of Tears monument was made by this by this white dude um, mm -hmm. and some of them I kind of imagined out of proportion so 
Donnie actually sees the ghost of Jesse James in the cavern and they have a weird moment where Donnie has a, a memory or a dream um, which speaks to this violent history and he gets totally freaked out and starts losing his memory after that stage. Um, so yeah, the, place, the places are there um, and I've kind of imagined them in a sort of magical realist way, but hopefully a way that actually speaks to uh, the darker histories at stake and, and uncovers them a little bit, brings them back from the dead. Yeah, I think the only place that I have been on the road trip in in my life in reality is um, Cadillac Ranch, yes. and I really loved what you did with the uh, performance art history of that landmark. Yeah, thanks. and it's it's very very. I think dark I could t- I think I can tell the listeners what happens. Um, basically. I'm sorry. I think I can tell the listeners what happens in this yes, scene. Yes, please do. Um, so I wanted Donnie and Mary Beth to lose their car at some stage. And I knew this was going to be like a very violent moment, but I kind of wanted to make it comical. So when they're by Cadillac Ranch, um, which is a, a, an insulation piece in Texas by this collective called the, the Ant Farm, I think. Um, mm-hmm. they, they get uh, accosted and threatened with guns by these performance artists who, who steal their truck and they're going to make a performance piece out of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> Which works so well because Cadillac Ranch and Ant Farm are these kind of like performance installation artists who were like hippie architects that got together and and were like obsessed with cars mm. and built these like crazy monuments <laughs> to them um so that was like that worked so well for me and it was so exciting to read about i'm i'm from west texas so okay. it was also like oh hey that's that's my home <laughs> yes and why can't there be performance artists at the end of the world right although i mean in, like, my, in my view they'd definitely be like antagonists yeah (laughs) especially to to a group like the collective right Right. because what's the point of performance you know Mm. if it uh if it doesn't support the universal body right um so can you tell me about the universal body actually um and like like what that theory and idea is built on. I tried to do a little Googling to see if it was um, an established theory and I couldn't find much. So I'm definitely curious about it. So uh, a little bit of uh, background. Um, when, I was ri- when I started writing the book, I, I didn't want to go the route of like, fascists and the people who are most powerful or the most wealthy are in charge of society um, because it was 2017 and I was getting so bored and heartbroken by fascism. Um, So I first set out to kind of have the people who are in charge of the limited water resources be um, kind of 
communist, communalist, um, to value the collective, they call themselves the collective, to, to value the universal body, which I guess I used as a placeholder for a theory in which um, everybody takes care of everybody because we're all a part of a universal body. Um, and somehow in the writing, uh, these, these characters who I set out to kind of want to take care of everybody ended up only really being concerned with taking care of themselves um, and the longevity of their organization. And uh, they ended up being kind of antagonists in a way to some of the other characters in my book uh, who are much more loosely organized around uh, friend groups and neighborhoods and communities and are also trying to take care of each other but without this kind of vanguardist centralist uh, movement almost like an like an NGO at the end of the world <laughs> yeah it reminded me a lot of um, uh, Joanna Zelinsky's End of Man and Joanna Hedva's sick woman theory. Um, just the, the, the kind of precarity and relationality that was being enacted by these two separate groups or by these two separate forms of community, the collective versus everyone else who was trying to survive. Um, and I thought it was such a beautiful living illustration of these theories. Uh, your entire book was um, just so like, like not bogged down in theory at all, but so illustrative of it. I was very, very impressed. Um, and now for a totally different direction, music is super prominent as a motif throughout um, the entire book and a lot of the songs that you include there are 17 in the draft that I read and I made a playlist of them uh, which is a, a great road trip driving mix um, and many of them reference water but not all of them they often have like a nostalgic working class Americana um feel or a religious relation there, there are a couple of hymns um and they not every single one but the majority seem to reflect Donnie's character so I was wondering if you could tell me about Donnie's relationship to music and how that came up and also just the relationship to uh, music as a motif throughout the book so I guess on the most basic level, um, I'm a I'm a DJ. So I, as I'm writing, I'm always like imagining the mixtape that goes along with the scene or the song that goes along with the scene, and I can't help but include some of those songs in this book. Um, and and the the songs that I kept coming back to were, as you say, these kind of like dad rock songs like Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and the Stones and those are very much the songs that I listen to with my dad 
in his pickup truck driving on the road late at night when I was a kid. So for me, they're extremely nostalgic and, uh, you know, they're talismans of Americana, like American anthems. And um, listening to them over again as I was writing the book, um, you still get that nostalgic pull. Um, but at the same time, like, there's something kind of corny and there's something kind of corny about them. And I, I liked how, how those songs fit on this road trip at the end of the world. Um, because it, it's, it, it has its moments of tenderness, but it also has these moments of, of emptiness and uh, longing and, and suffering. And, and those songs were very emblematic of that. Um, with regards to the hymns, um, these are hymns that, that Johnny sings sometimes, almost to comfort himself. And uh, hymns for me, because I, I grew up in a Catholic family, are also very nostalgic. And there's something interesting about them because they're nostalgic and I associate them with my childhood, but they're not really childish. They're very uh, ancient. Um, and there's something also about singing a hymn by yourself, which Johnny often does, which feels both sacred and macabre, um, and that just really like strikes a tone, I think, in those scenes of, um, yeah, comfort and sacredness and tenderness, but also a bit creepy and sad and lonely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a road trip at the end of the world would be creepy and sad and lonely. Oftentimes road trips in in this stage of the end of the world are creepy and sad and lonely. Um, so it seems really fitting. It also seems fitting that, um, you know, there's there's sort of a connection for me between road trips and religion. I think in general they can be very spiritual experiences time seems to pass in a sort of different way you think about things differently when you're rushing past the scenery and there's also the idea of like pilgrimage and Donnie and Mary Beth are are making a pilgrimage to um Los Angeles so I was wondering if any if if or what the um motif of religion did for you you said you grew up in a catholic family but is there anything beyond that that helped you structure this or that you were thinking about as you were working on it um yeah absolutely i mean i think some of the those christian narratives that i grew up with have have stuck with me and um, without even really being conscious of it, I think I organized the road trip in a sort of redemption arc where the characters would start off being uh, very alienated from each other and from themselves and hopefully end the road trip coming to some sort of reconciliation with each other and, and with themselves. Um, maybe not religious in terms of like finding God, but certainly like sweating off fear to get to the love underneath, sweating off denial to get to the honesty underneath. Um, and also along the way, 
both Mary Beth and Johnny kind of oscillate between almost sinning in front of each other or revealing each other their sins and forgiving each other and that happening over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was also thinking about, you know, the, the, the cab of the truck is almost a confessional booth. And as you're stuck with somebody on the road, whether by volunteering or, or <laughs> whatever, um, you ask questions that you wouldn't normally ask and you tell stories that you wouldn't ordinarily tell and um, being in this confined environment but also traveling the the land in a way you've never done before I think as you say it it reveals part of yourself and and you can reveal yourself in front of another person in a way that you wouldn't normally do uh, in a more domestic narrative Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. It's I, I'm really, really excited about this book. Um, and also it has made me excited about the idea of road trip narratives. I went on a couple of giant road trips in the last year because I didn't um, want to fly. And it's been, it, it, it's just like, it is totally accessing a different part of yourself. So I'm excited to read Plain Water, um, and if you think of any other great road trip narratives, please, please shoot me an email. Let us know. Um, so, in, a, in another direction, I am really excited to see that you're working with Perennial Press on this project. I think they're very cool. I like what they're doing a lot. Um, and so I am just curious about how you ended up working with them and what the process has been like for you. Sure. So um, I submitted an early draft of a chapter from How to Build a Home for the End of the World for the anthology Supernatural Art and Fiction for the Future, which Perennial Press released in 2019. Um, you should pick it up, although you should know that the draft that's in that book is not at all what it is in the book today. <laughs> um, but there's some other amazing artists and writers in there. Um, and I absolutely loved working with Maddie Giovina and Tiffany Niles, who were the editors of that anthology. Um, so when it came, it, I finished my manuscript and it came time to find a publisher. Um, I felt really in out of my depth, uh, kind of figuring out where I might fit in the publishing industry, and it, it just made sense to to approach them as kind of the the first people because they had been the first readers of such an early draft. Um, and working with them has been absolutely fantastic. They are great editors, kind people. Um, Maddie is 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 growing this press in a really beautiful way. Um, as our tagline says, they're a little press with a big heart, and um, I think that's true. And and I hope that people who find my book, uh, you know, also find Perennial Press and pick up some of their other titles um, because, yeah, I love what they're doing as well. Cool. Thanks for sharing that and for shouting them out. And I will definitely look into Supernatural as well. Um, so it's almost 1 a.m. where I am right now. So 
<laughs> yeah, no problem. It's like sleepover vibes. I'm I'm wearing some cute pajamas and I made some like pastries and stuff to keep myself up. So <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> Yeah, of course. So I do have one last question. Uh, well, two last questions. Um, and the first one is, are you working on anything now that you want to tell us about? Uh, yes, I'm working on my second book. It's going to be called Archaeology of Angel. And it is about a boy who falls in love with a ghost. <clears throat> So I love that. Uh, <laughs> thanks. I'm hoping I'm to. I'm excited already. <laughs> I'm hoping to finish um, a draft by the end of the year, um, but I'll be excited to to share that when when it's finished. Cool. So, do you want to tell us what the guiding the guiding text for this one is? Um, and if not, what are you reading? these days mm. um, I'm, I'm working with a few different texts for this book um, as I'm trying to uh, work through it find my feet currently I'm reading cleanness by Garth Greenwell Ugh, and so good. yeah so good um, because I've got planned like four or five sex scenes in this novel <laughs> Um, and, yep. and Garth Greenwell is kind of, you know, the contemporary master of the sex scene, in my opinion. So definitely, I'm trying to learn a little bit from, from him. Definitely. Cool. I, I love that book. It is actually on my nightstand and I pick it up periodically and just like open it up at random and read it. It is such a sexy book. Um, <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Keely. I am, again, just really excited to have had the opportunity to read your book and talk with you about it. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to your upcoming sexy ghost story. Um, cool. Uh, so have a great day and... Um, keep us posted and I hope to hear more from and about you soon. Oh, and congratulations on your book coming out this week. That's so exciting. Oh, thank you so much. So the pre-orders are going out, uh, will be open on this Friday, the 21st. Um, and then the book will properly come out on the 1st of May. Hurrah. Hurrah. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a May to look forward to. on the Full Stop podcast, a bit of a treat. We present a sound experiment between writers and artists Ansgar Allen and Mike Corral. Ansgar is the author of books including A Short History of Cynicism and the novellas Wretch and The Sick List, which Full Stop called a timely examination of higher learning's malaise. Mike Corral is the author most recently of Rituals Performed in the Absence of Ganymede, which Full Stop described as a book of extreme compositional precision, but also determinedly enigmatic. So I'll let these two enigmatic writers take it from here. When Mike Correo and I discussed doing a podcast on The Sick List, 
which has just recently been published by Boiler House Press. We thought it might be interesting to reflect the failure to communicate, which is a function of the novel, where the narrator and Gordon never indeed speak to one another, with a failure to communicate within the podcast itself. We decided not to record the podcast live. Instead, Mike set about recording some questions on the basis that they would remain unanswered, and I set about recording a few passages from the book that would serve as responses. Mike's questions are difficult, elusive, perhaps unanswerable, remaining enigmatic both in their delivery and their content. They are also underwritten by the noise of his equipment and the hostility of that noise to the ear. I would like to thank Emil Boyerson for his help with sound design. Is the role of the writer to contaminate? Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? Are books meant to be read? Is that their primary function? Can a book be misread? And if so, to what degree can the interpretation of the reader and the author differ before the former is wrong entirely? What is the book sickness? Is the academic text an ailment brought on by the Puritan work ethic? Gordon Newman, I felt, for an alternative as with most ideas, perhaps walking to but this idea would not endure the kind of scrutiny his profession expected. What is the book sickness? Gordon's office was a place where thinking was impossible. Are books meant to be read? Is that their primary function? Its offices are not places of thought. At its best, the university office was a place where I might sit and ponder the deplorable state. What is the book sickness? Now, even that thinking about the deplorable state of things and as such, the university has no further function. Is the reader an active participant in the books they engage with? Does this render the author passive? The reader able to manipulate the text in ways that are outside of the author's reach? What is it? Can the self be projected as a substitute for the text? And if so, what is it? Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? Can a book be misread? And if so, to what degree can the interpretation of the reader and the author differ before the former is wrong entirely? Can the self be projected as a substitute for the text? Gordon changed tack. His writing had run thin. There were several attempts to underline the personality of a fetish object. Gordon pressed hard and scratched the back, attempting to underscore the text. I fear women like you. All this scratching became random. Gordon's methods allude to a replacement of the author, but the reader would rather scratch about. You see the reader as an alternative to the author, as providing a different means of creating that the author cannot. He was always running out of ink and filling up. What is the book sickness? So much I already knew. Gordon is left the trail. Contagion? Is it a fetish object? Because he left that trail, he was always running out of it. Is the reader an he active participant in the book so they engage with? Does this render the author passive? Is the reader able it. to manipulate the text in ways that are This running out of ink was insufferable for someone like Gordon, I suppose. Can a book it be was a nuisance that To what degree can the interpretation of the reader and the author differ before the former is finally relenting and refilling his pen? Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? Can the self be projected as a substitute for the text? And if so, what place is that?
Is the reader an active participant in the book's engagement? Does this render the author passive? Is the reader able to manipulate the text in ways that are outside of the author's reach? What is the book sickness? Gordon's method alludes to a replacement of the author by the reader, a usurping. Do you see the reader as an alternative to the author, as providing a different means of creating that the author can read? already ruined its ability to read by the time I read it. Can you see the that is no longer read? Text can be read? It lost the, the ability to distinguish between books worth reading line by line, and books that must be scanned and quickly discarded. These books must be abandoned very quickly to avoid the illness books produce in the mind of the reader, which yawns open and petrifies. Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? These books announce the death of thought for their readership before my time. That is why academics no longer think, or when they think, struggle to think anything more than the thought of wanting to think. Not that we ever amount to much as thinking beings. As thinkers, we are Is the text a contagion that is a fetish object? We occupy most of the time as thinking or attempting Is the reader an active participant? Is this written to the author path? reader able to the can a book be written beyond its original form? Can marginalia and annotations be used as a means to expand a text into a new variation or iteration of itself? Is an annotated copy of, say, Bernard's Gargoyles a different book than the unannotated original? Is the reader an active participant in the books they engage with? Does this render the author passive? Is the reader able to manipulate the text in ways that are outside of the author's reach? Can a book be misread, and if so, to what degree can the interpretation of the reader and the author differ before the former is wrong entirely? Are books meant to be read? Is that their primary function? Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? Three days before I saw Gordon holding that remarkable what is book, a colleague of his, or at least someone who worked in the same department, was found sitting at his desk, suffering Are books meant to be read? Is that their primary function? He had not been seen outside his office for three days. Are books meant to be read as a primary function? On his swivel chair since Tuesday. On Friday, he was discovered. Can be projected as a substitute for the text? Nothing could be done to revive the colleague from his stupor. Nipsa would replace it. He had stopped doing things and talking about the things. Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? To do. What is the book sickness? Can the self be projected as a substitute for the text? And if so, what replaces us? Gordon was sick. What is the book sickness? But he was also a sickness. Gordon was the manifestation of the sickness. Is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? Of his own. The sickness of Gordon would spread. Is the reader an active participant in the book they engage with? Does this render the author passive? The reader able to manipulate the text in ways that are outside of the author's reach? Are books meant to be read? Is that their primary function? What is the book sickness? This reminded me by some strange association. Can a book be read? And if so, to what degree can the interpretation of the that was pissing at the time? From which piss it took great gulps. Are books meant to be read? To raise their primary function and suck inwards. As if tasting is the text a contagion? Is it a fetish object? A great trail of which Smith was carried upon a breeze. What is the book? Together with some half-ingested piss. 
across the face of the woman standing just by the Mordanalian and And thank you for listening to the Full Stop Podcast. You could support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag and always find a ton of reviews, essays, and interviews at www.full-stop.net. We'll see you next time.